If you've been told to pull up your socks recently, then make sure it's a pair of RCR socks. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash shop. Welcome back, listeners, to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Um, hope you've had a good week, but uh, it never sleeps in our place. And so we do a lot of reading for you that um, hopefully we're going to put you in the direction of um, the gentleman we've got on today, and you'll do a lot more reading there. Uh, his name is Francis Menton. He uh, writes a blog called The Manhattan Contrarian. He's a seriously well-qualified um, lawyer uh, from Harvard and Yale and has spent a career in the field of commercial litigation. Now, that's underselling what Francis has done, I know, but um, we're here to talk with Francis about the content of his blog. Uh, we've we've had a bit of a preamble off here with him and we've got a handle on what he thinks and I think it could be similar to what Jaspreet and I often talk about and that is um, the overbearing uh, influences of government and bureaucracy on our lives. And so, Francis, welcome to RCR Greenwash. It's a privilege, a privilege for us to have you on. We've You're following a long line of um, overseas uh, commentators for us, and we're very thankful that you've given us some of your time. You obviously live in Manhattan, Greenwich Village. I think I've got that right. Um, I think it can get quite cold there in the winter, uh, probably colder than Invercargill. But um, anyway, how are things your way? Uh, things are terrific. I do. I live in Manhattan. I'm in my home and on the beautiful island of Manhattan today, which is the center of New York City for those who may not uh, know the geography terribly well. And it, it, it can get terribly cold here in the winter. Do you use Celsius or Fahrenheit there? Celsius. Celsius. Well, you'll have to, you'll have to uh, <laughs> give me a second to convert, but the, the record low temperature in New York City is below um, 20, minus 20 Celsius, less than minus, like minus 22 Celsius approximately is the coldest it's ever gotten. But in a typical year, it, it typically will get to around minus 10 Celsius. Mm-hmm. But the average low for a winter day is more like minus 3 Celsius. So even in the depth of the winter, it's more of the time is above freezing than below. Yeah, well, you need a bit of global warming your way as well. Uh, so do we. <laughs> uh, we're we're forty five degrees south, and uh, but there's no icebergs flight floating by um, anytime soon. So, look, uh, thanks for that bit of his, uh, geography. But we better get into the nuts and bolts of everything. I mean, you what put us onto you? Um, both of us have been reading your blogs for a long time. And um, you're a prolific writer. Uh, you've been involved in presenting some submissions, as we call them here, to uh, various agencies. Uh, but the one that got us a couple of weeks ago uh, was the crazy climate uh, conference. One, uh, conference you went to. <laughs> and, and you know, part of today's interview is about just giving us a, probably a once-over lightly of many of the aspects of uh, and topics that you you cover, and that was one of them. And what did you find at that conference? Uh, I mean, your blog tells us, but in short, what did you find? Yeah, my, this- yeah my blog may not tell you everything. Um, so a, a an organization called City and State, which is actually a uh, uh, journalism, I don't, I don't know that they put out a paper newspaper anymore, but it's a website, I guess, that covers New York City and state politics. And they put on a climate conference, which was here in the downtown Manhattan area. <clears throat> so I decided to go. And they had as their speakers a collection of uh, one, politicians, uh, and two, people in the renewable energy, quote unquote, business, uh, looking to get in on the handouts, I would say. So the politicians, well, politicians is too, is too much, politicians and bureaucrats. So, so the, the heads of several of the city and state agencies who are supposedly conducting this energy transition were there and several members of the state legislature and the city legislature, which is called the city council, were there speaking. 
and people who work for various of these energy companies that are either building or hoping to build solar farms or wind turbines and so forth. Also representatives of, of some of the utilities, although a notable absence there was um, a representative of the ISO, which is called the Independent System Operator. And why that's so notable is that the ISO is the one that's responsible for, let's say, balancing the grid or making sure that the electricity supply is always there to meet the demand. And the funny thing is there's been a huge change over the last 20 years in how electricity supplies. They, they, they supposedly deregulated, but as part of the deregulation, the utilities who deliver electricity to your house and send you the bill don't produce the power anymore, nor are they responsible for balancing supply and demand. So just because somebody from Con Edison, that's my utility that I pay my bill to, who was a very sensible guy and he was there, but they have no responsibility for the critical issue anymore. And the people who do have responsibility for the critical issue weren't there. So everybody who was there was a cheerleader for the great green energy transition that we're about to have. And to a person, they did not know what they were talking about, what the problems were. They were, they were totally in la-la land. So that's why I called it the crazy climate conference. <laughs> Yeah, and, and just listeners, just for, for information, uh, crazy climate conference begins with K, K for crazy, K for climate, K for conference. I think you could have um, called it the cult with a K conference as well. Um, well, the, the, the word cult, as, as to the climate uh, zealots, <laughs> certainly comes to mind. And I've used that many times, although I haven't started spelling it with a K yet, but maybe I will. But it's interesting. Yeah, you know, I've been involved in the energy sector as well, and um, it it intrigues me how people believe that electrifying everything um, is going to be the savior. Uh, as as if New York, for instance, had a a major power outage. Uh, you've just talked about the temperatures. Whether it would be in a hot summer day or a cold winter's day, it won't be pleasant. Uh, aside from the fact that uh, your economy will shut down pretty quickly. Um, so why why are we building this this lack of um, resiliency? I, I don't like using that word, but it's a buzzword um, in the system. It it is putting you in a serious seriously vulnerable position. I would suggest a bit like we're going to do to ourselves here. Well, I would agree with that. However, we're we're nowhere yet. So if the question is, have we had any blackouts yet? The answer is. Uh, We've had blackouts, but not not because of the conversion to wind and solar, nor have we had blackouts in the last few years as they've gotten started with this. But they're barely started. So New York decided to go to jump feet first uh, in, into the plunge pool of the, of the energy transition with an act that was passed by the state legislature in 2019. And it sets a bunch of goals for uh, converting to renewable, quote unquote, power. Uh, the first of those goals is 2030. So we're we're closing in on the halfway point to there. But the, the goal doesn't come for another six years. And uh, in terms of getting there, well, to get there, according to them, you have to close the fossil fuel generation, which in New York is almost entirely natural gas, and you have to replace it with something. And now the first thing they did was they came out with a scoping plan that's going to tell us how to do this. And that scoping plan took them a couple of years and was only actually finalized in December of 2022. So it's less than a year ago that we actually have a supposedly a roadmap to tell us how to get there. The roadmap is 700 pages long of, of, of gibberish. And, and um, so I don't know how many of my blog posts you've read about it, but it's 700 pages that make no sense whatsoever. They, they have no idea what they're doing. They're, they're completely incompetent. So they're going to close natural ga gas generation that operates all the time. And it operates when the customers need the, pow the power and the electricity. And they're going to replace it with wind turbines and uh, solar panels. Well, 
they have plans for making enormous numbers of wind turbines and solar panels, but with nameplate capacity, approximately the same as the natural gas plants they're closing. The natural gas plants work 80 or 90% of the time. And by the way, you can pick the 10%. They don't work because that's because you're doing maintenance or something like that. Mm-hmm. The wind and solar work approximately 25 to 35% of the time, and you don't get to pick when. So they're replacing reliable generation from natural gas with wind and solar that won't produce nearly as much power and not a lot of the time. How is this going to work? Oh, then they talk about, well, we'll have, we'll, we'll have some storage to back it up so that that can work uh, the rest of the time. Well, they're not building enough wind and solar to fill the storage, let alone they don't even know the correct units to quote storage capacity. And they quote it in megawatts. It should be megawatt hours, hours to know how much storage you need. The whole 700-page scoping plan doesn't even consider the, the megawatt hour issue. They have no concept of how much it's going to cost. They have no concept. If you if you do some simple arithmetic on this, you figure out that wind and solar, they have a daily cycle, but they also have a yearly cycle and even a multi-yearly cycle. And so you need wind and solar. If you, you need storage to back up wind and solar that can be put in storage and used a year later or two years or five years like water in a reservoir, <laughs> that doesn't even exist. No such thing exists. So and meanwhile, they're closing the natural gas plants. Now, we have not had a blackout yet because they've only barely begun with this. And I don't know what's going to happen. Are they, are they going to back off at some point in the later 2020s when it becomes clear this is ridiculous? Or are they going to keep for, uh, plowing forward until our whole economy closes down? I have no idea. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? This seems to be a cut, copy, paste the world over. Just like you, you know, you're mentioning there, New Zealand. We are part of this UK-registered charity called the Wellbeing Alliance. And in 2018, we declared when the last government, and I'm sorry, Jacinda is now in your shows, Francis, but yeah, <laughs> keep keep her there. So her government uh, put. Uh, complete block on any more offshore oil drilling. And we began what is colloquially called as out here, the just transitions. It's a buzzword straight out of the World Economic Forum. We set up a just transitions unit. Uh, Our roadmap was not quite as big as yours, the 700 pages, but they set up 11 different transformation pathways, whatever. It's, It's word salads. And I thought I understand English. And where Don and I live, so we are in Southland, They've now recently declared us that we are going to be the wind energy capital of New Zealand. They have identified over 50 spots on this coast, which they say are absolutely perfect for wind turbines and so on. And they want us to, you know, just try. I sometimes wonder these words, just, is it it being used as the opposite of unjust or does it mean just, you better do it or else. But we're doing (laughs) the exact same thing to ourselves. Are, Are the wind turbines onshore or offshore? Uh, that'd be onshore. onshore. Onshore for now, but there's an offshore option being being explored in Taranaki, which is in the North Island and a major volcanic area. And there was a lot of uh, fracking and drilling and everything available, but it's, it's all been shut down. But uh, tell me, Francis, how does a litigation lawyer, 40 years, transform into this blogger? And you know, you say that you are just, I'm reading out the blurb from your blog, it says you you are combating elite Manhattan political ideologies <laughs> and climate change, the purpose of government and the basic principles of economics. How does a, li- a litigation lawyer start doing that? And your output has been prolific listeners, thousand plus articles on Manhattan Contrarian. Yeah, but it's not prolific enough. I'll tell you, I've never written a book and I really <laughs> should write a book. There's a book I there. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there's there is plenty of books. Yeah, but I, yeah. I don't nearly have time to write a book. So I, somehow I have to figure out how to write a book. Uh, more recently, I've been spending time with my grandchildren. So my, my blog is maybe a thirty uh, percent of time job. But yeah. but um, litigation lawyer. I don't know what you think of as litigation lawyer because because the the contact you might have or know of of high-end litigation lawyers tends to be these tort guys who sue for uh, 
uh, asbestos. Thousands of people with asbestos or exposure to herbicides or something like that, or or suits against uh, like shareholder suits against big companies. And I was more involved in basic contract disputes between companies mm. where I could be either the plaintiff or the defendant and the, the companies would say under, but the, the most typical contract involved would be a contract to buy or sell a company. Right. So you bought or sold a company and maybe it didn't work out quite as you hoped. And, uh, or there will be payments, sometimes big payments, hundreds of millions of dollars payable over several years depending on earnings. Oh, somebody's manipulating the earnings. So they're claiming they don't owe the money when they really do like that kind of thing is, right. is, so this what is what I worked on, but it's, it's, it's very much about persuasive writing. That's, that's what the job is mostly about. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we have lawyers in New Zealand, Francis, who've organized themselves and have become set up with an outfit called Lawyers for Climate Justice, who keep attacking <laughs> the government. So you could have actually gone down that lucrative pathway, even. Well, well, yes, there's there's becoming a lot of uh, lawsuits about mm. climate stuff. And I actually, here in my retirement, I dabble in some of that on what we call a pro bono basis. In other words, I don't get paid anymore. But uh, I, I do dabble in some of these lawsuits. Some, some of these lawsuits just couldn't be crazier. My, I mean, my favorite ones are that they'll round up a group of 10 or 20 kids or teenagers, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds. Yep who claim that they have a constitutional right to a healthy climate. Oh, yeah. And and that that is being undermined by the fossil fuel companies. Now, some of these lawsuits, they have sued the major um, oil and gas companies, claiming they're responsible for destroying the climate of the planet. Others, I mean, there, there, there are lawsuits out there which seek an injunction against the United States of America to require it to end the use of fossil fuels in order to save the climate. Um, and, and there are hundreds of these lawsuits. Oh, by the way, in some of the state, you know, here in the United States, we have the federal government in 50 states. The states have big responsibilities for government, and they all have their own constitutions and their own legislatures and governors. And some of them, more than one or two, have provisions in the Constitution saying something like, in in the list of your rights, one of your rights is a right to a clean and healthy climate. So, so this is just an invitation for whatever you could think of in these lawsuits. Yeah. Well, and and you know, um, we noted that you um, were involved in a case between uh, the Concerned Household Electricity Consumers Councils versus the EPA. And a quick read of that suggests to me that, uh, well, there's a term standing you came up with in that um, that blog. Well, I didn't come up with it, but... No, 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 but there is a term. Yeah, yeah, okay. And it it clearly uh, states that, um, uh, well, the way I read it, there is no standing for uh, anyone to defend yourself against the EPA. The EPA is all powerful. Is that is that how it should be read? Well, no. No? Um, okay. No. Now, uh, I, I will not be knowledgeable about the law of New Zealand at all in this area or, or uh, other countries other than the United States. But in the United States Constitution, mm. Uh, which is not a long document. There, there are. Uh, there's a th- Article Three defines the court system and what its powers and limits are, and it says that the uh, court system can have jurisdiction over the following cases and controversies, and that's the operative term: cases and controversies. So that has been interpreted by the federal courts and the Supreme Court as meaning that the federal courts do not give what are called advisory opinions. Like you, you cannot bring a lawsuit in the United States for uh, to say, here's the statute. We don't know what it means. Court, please tell us what it means. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
that that would be called an advisory opinion. So the courts don't do it. Actually, some of the state courts do do it, but the federal courts don't. So, and so how do you draw the line? The federal courts draw the line by saying you can't bring a lawsuit unless you have a concrete, definite injury that you can claim uh, is the basis for your lawsuit. That gives if you have a concrete injury as a plaintiff, you can say I have a case or a controversy. Now, the funny thing is that the environmentalists have totally figured out how to game this. And for, for example, somebody who owns a piece of property on the seacoast, and, and this is a, an example of a precedent that was cited and argued over in our case in the D.C. Circuit. It's not our case. It's, a pre, it's one that came before us. A guy owned a piece of property on the seacoast, and he says, well, fossil fuels are causing global warming. Global warming is melting ice. Ice I, it hasn't happened yet, but I'm afraid it will cause the sea level to rise. I'm afraid it will make storms more dangerous for me. That's my harm. That's my standing. No problem. You got it. Okay. <laughs> now, we come, <laughs> we come in and say, uh, we're challenging an EPA uh, uh, finding, which mm. which is used as the basis for closing fossil fuel power plants and for enforcing a transition to wind and solar energy. And we're saying, well, those things don't work and won't work. Our electricity prices are going to go up. To which the answer was, that connection isn't close enough for us to understand that you don't have standing. So, if, so see if you can understand why the environmentalist who's afraid that 100 years from now the sea level rise is going to harm his coastal property versus us with our electricity bills going up, which one sounds like better standing to you? Well, the D.C. <laughs> Circuit, I mean, this is a very easy issue to politicize. The D.C. Circuit threw us out on that ground. Now, to be honest, we can't say, you know, here's the $50 that I paid, but but neither can the environmentalist. So it's it's somewhat of a judgment call, but the deck is definitely stacked in favor of environmental crazies and against environmental sanists. Mm -hmm. Very definitely. I, I noticed you had um, William Happer and Richard Lindzen as uh, part of your of the team um, in, the, oh, in, Win, in Van Wingarden. And we have um, regularly quoted those guys, uh, their output on our show. Uh, we wish New Zealanders would listen to these uh, people and people like yourself uh, because we're falling into the same hole. Of course, you've got Gavin Newsom on the uh, on the west coast of America. He's, he's going to fix everything um, uh, for everybody. Uh, how does that sit? <laughs> Well, that's that's government's role is to is to eliminate all downside risk in life and create a, a society of perfect fairness and justice where nobody has to worry about anything. Uh, in in the case of Happer and Lindzen, uh, who, by the way, I, I know pretty well, um, uh, they're not a party in our case, but it, at, at one phase of it, they submitted an what's called an amicus brief. Uh, uh, saying why they thought we were right on the science that that there that um, increased greenhouse gases are not dangerous and not and are not a crisis. Um, now it turns out once we got zapped on standing, their scientific input became not very critical to that issue at all. So uh, at that point, they dropped out. Now Haber and Lindzen. Happer is the chairman of something called the CO2 Coalition. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes. Yeah. You have. Absolutely. And, and so the CO2 Coalition, and they recruited me to join that. It has about between 100 and 200 members, I would say. Most of them scientists. I'm one of the few non-scientists, although I, you know, I kind of uh, dabble in. Uh, oh, you, you most definitely do. Yeah. Science. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Now, I, uh, we, as Don told you, we've just had an election. I mean, we had the election in October, but it's taken a few weeks for this 
three-way coalition to sort out their differences and come together. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but I usually am. But everyone seems to think that this is perfect. We've got the right here. The media is raging. It's we've got the far right here and so on. <laughs> but uh, I was uh, reading your blog on about Trump and how, you know, when Trump came, there was a lot of hope, especially in the scientific community, the same scientific community I might add, about the fact that things might be unraveled. The nonsense might be unraveled. And you say, that didn't happen. The Trump administration was mostly a disappointment. They yep. did take on a few regulatory matters, but they never tackled what you call the endangerment finding, labeling carbon dioxide a danger to human health. And there was no meaningful pushback against activist bureaucracies, funding for climate change. And that's exactly what Don and I worry about. You can change a government, but the bureaucrats, the NGOs, the funding for the universities and so on, that doesn't change, does it? How has how have things gone for the U.S. You know, post uh, Trump, and has anything changed at all? Well, Trump famously promised over and over to drain mm. the swamp. Mm. I, I don't mean to be too critical of him on mm. this because yep. he did a number of things. He did a number of positive things. I mean, he's also a crazy man, which is which is a problem. But he did a number of positive things. But on the draining the swamp issue, he barely got started. Now, in order to like defund the left, that could be done in the United States with big enough majorities in Congress. But it can't be done with a majority in the House of Representatives of 10 or 5 or 15 seats and a majority in the Senate of one or two or three seats. It really requires a majority in the Senate of 10 seats and, and a majority in the House of Representatives of 50 seats. Well, why is that? Con consider, consider this climate energy issue. <clears throat> and again, I don't know the politics in New Zealand on this, but one of the encouraging things is that the Republican Party has mostly come around to climate skepticism. Mm -hmm. But mostly does not mean entirely. And just to give you an example, the, the, well, currently the Democrats hold a one seat majority in the Senate, 51-49. But sometimes you can peel one of those guys off. But can you hold the Republicans together? Oh, who is the biggest weasel in the whole Senate on climate and energy issues? Mitt Romney. He was my law school classmate. <laughs> And he's, a, you know, he ran for president in 2012. You probably know. Currently, yeah. he's a senator from Utah. And and he is he's just not on board with the Republican program on this issue. And when when everything turns on one or two votes, he sinks it. <laughs> and and uh, and he's got a, he's got a couple of others in the Senate like that. Uh, Susan Collins of Maine is one of them. Um, if I thought about it for a minute, I could come up with another one or two. But but when the Senate turns on one or two votes now, how I suppose we get a Republican president. But how are we going to pass a bill to defund a lot of this stuff if we can't get a majority vote in the Senate? And that's where exactly. It is. Yep. And Don, we talk about the same thing, don't we? Nothing changes in the schools, the universities, the same curriculum, the same test labs. Oh, no, it's and, changing. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. It's, uh, is the, it? The, well, by, by changing, mm. it, it's changing for the worse. I mean, oh. since, since I was in school, which is mm. which is now 40 to 50 years ago, the schools were leftist, but there were, first of all, there were non-leftist professors who were left alone and treated with respect. Yes. And leftism meant thinking that bigger government is a good thing or government spending is a good thing, but it didn't mean critical race theory. It didn't mean Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. It didn't mean toxic gender ideology. It didn't I mean it's 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 gotten far, far worse than than when I was at school. Hmm. So now the funny thing is um and I have contacts with student groups at both Yale and Harvard. 
who are conservative student groups, and they they have not a few members, um, but far from a majority. So there are there are substantial student groups at Yale and Harvard that might be more than ten, but less than twenty percent of the student population. Um, they're, they're 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 a they've got a mass, but maybe not a critical mass. Yeah, they're 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 not driven to zero, mm. but they're a clear minority and not like a forty five percent minority. They're like a fifteen percent minority. So, how did the learned uh, academics of of the universities and the professions let this happen? So so subversive. It seems like subversion almost, uh, but. It's happened over my lifetime and your lifetime, and we've let it happen. Um, well, you're saying have... the learned academics let it happen, but I would say the learned academics let it. <laughs> they, they were the leaders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they didn't let it happen. They made it happen. They yeah. caused it to happen. And, and why is that? Well, I mean, I have many theories about this, but, mm. but uh, it, at, at the top of the list is that is that uh, academics don't live in in, a, in an environment where they see how the competitive economy works. They never learn how the competitive economy works. And, and they think, I, I had some posts about this. You look at Hillary Clinton's speeches about Ooh, yeah. economics. Or Joe Biden isn't different, but Hillary Clinton is more explicit that her in her mind, all wealth comes from government spending, and more government spending means more wealth. More, wealth. more government spending means we help more people, and more government spending is in every way a good thing. I mean, it's 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 as simple as that. Hmm. Free market economics. These people have never lived in the real world. They've, They've never lived, you know, within world. those hallowed walls of universities and so on, and that's that's where they plot and plan. And I think that most of them don't even realize it themselves. They just truly believe it. I've come across some very passionate, shall we say, people who believe in this that this is what's going to happen. And someone like me is being irresponsible, and you can actually see it in their faces. They truly believe it with every fiber of their being. Yes, I mean. The free market economy is not a directed process. It's not directed by the smartest people to figure out how it's going to happen. It's a trial and error process where everybody gets to try and succeed or fail. And over time, the ones that succeed do well, the ones that fail get wiped out, and those people could start again. I mean, that that's how the process works. The academic thinks they're smarter than that, right? Mm-hmm. They, they they can envision a more just and fair world and because they're so much smarter they can they can implement their vision and it has no downsides and that that's just the way they look at the world I think that's mm. it's interesting one of your quotes in a in a blog recent blog you talked about reality refuses to cooperate um we've reached peak absurd absurdity Uh-oh. and you know, I, I think that's uh, exactly where we are, oh, peak peak absurdity. Um, we live in the real world, uh, but so many people don't. I just want to go back, though, because it intrigues me. You went to university in the 70s. I was leaving school and doing stuff about the same time. Um, so we're all heading to 70 by the sound of it. Um, right. And uh, I and, cruised right through that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so, so, so look... Um, well, you're looking pretty pretty fresh. Uh, but but this all happened under our noses. And I still haven't discovered absolutely where the genesis of all this uh, push to have this leftist ideology coming at us uh, was from. Uh, you know, people talk about Marx, people talk about Gramsci, but how the dickens did it happen post-World War II so easily? Uh, just... Yeah. I wish I had an answer to that. I mean, the, the famous quote of Winston Churchill, and I won't get it quite right, but if you're not a socialist when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a capitalist when you're older, you have no brain. Yeah. Um, but 
and I, I've discussed this subject with some of my younger colleagues back when I was employed in a big operation where I had a lot of younger colleagues, uh, and a lot of them were liberals. And I would say to them, so let me summarize your view of the world, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Your view of the world is, here's poverty, suffering, injustice over here. Here's a lot of rich people with a lot of money over there. All the government has to do is come in, take the money from over there, put it over here, and fix everything. And that's that's all that has to be done. And a lot of them would say, yeah, that's, that's basically right. But it, now, in order to understand why that doesn't work, I think that takes that takes some real experience in the world. And it takes some some experience where you're not sheltered from real consequences. I think so. I think a lot of young people, people in college, people at elite colleges have grown up mostly in wealthy families. They haven't had any real consequences. All they know is the money just keeps coming and they have plenty. And why can't the government just use that to? I mean, you can look right here, look at those poor people. They're people who are homeless. Can you goddamn build them a house? Mm. Rent them an apartment. That's the end of homelessness. And, you know, you you actually have to watch what's going on as a place like New York goes from a $500 million budget for the homeless to a billion, to two billion, to four billion, to five billion. And the number of homeless grows. How could that possibly be? And the same thing has happened in San Francisco and the same thing has happened in Seattle and Los Angeles and Chicago. And Auckland. We are we are it's the same state of Auckland. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm in my mid-40s, gentlemen, and I'll I'll try to attempt to answer this. I think with my limited experience as compared to you two gents, the last 20, 25 years growing up have been quite relatively easy for most people. I remember when I was younger, or my parents' times when they tell me, you know, yeah, everyone was living in the real world. Academia was just academia. My dad, uh, his parents didn't have a car. He, in fact, lost his parents really young. I think my dad bought his first car in his 30s after he had joined the army, worked for a few years, 10 years or so. And I was relatively young when we had a car in our family. My kids have grown up. My kids, yeah, this is in India. So my dad retired as a lieutenant colonel, Francis. And my kids have never known us not being a two-car household. Uh, academic standards, I also think, have slipped. My parents in India, my my, they have some of my grandfather's uh, letters on both sides. Great English, great Hindi, whatever they were written, well-formed. And I have seen in my lifetime academic standards slip, slip to the point where kids can come. Had I have a friend who's asked me for a few books recently, her nine-year-old is struggling to read properly. This is a child who goes to a great school in Invercargill. And, you know, why does this happen? Why are we failing our children? And I think all of those things, an easy life, you have phones, instant gratification combined with slipping academic standards and everything, it's all combined to where we are. Children, people don't think these days. They don't. They want to be told how to think. This conference you mentioned, Francis, led by a media house. Like, what is media doing setting up a climate change conference which is being attended by bureaucrats? It is, they're just too cozy together. Yes, well, that question of why the city and state thing set up this particular conference, I I was scratching my head about that too. Um, uh, I I, I I think my best guess on that Mm-hmm. is that they are cultivating sources for um, for their articles. They, they mm-hmm. want to be see with the Collaborating, yep. So they can get the scoops, supposedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would call them pretty worthless scoops. But that's, but that's sort of networking, you know. It, it, it blurs the boundaries where media should be and where bureaucrats sure. are and who makes the policies. And I see that all too often these days. Literally, there's... They tell us to sign declarations of conflicts of interest. And, you know, someone like me in my position, anything over 50 or $100 is it, I need to declare, even if it's someone's paid for a meal for me or something. And that's fine. But you see very mass conflicts of interest on a multi-million dollar scale. No one blinks an eyelid. 
You mean the president of the United States taking five billion dollars? <laughs> I was hoping you'd come to in that. Ukraine or China? <laughs> oh, no, those don't count. <laughs> they just don't. No, that's just no, you but, know, good business. But, but just breed. I I don't know if I can help you with this whole business of why uh, standards are declining and you know the world is yeah. going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, no, I. I just think we're failing the next generation. Dawn and I, uh, I mean, in, on another level, you're in states, Dawn is a born Kiwi, New Zealand are born and brought up here. I migrated about just shy of 15 years ago. We are very different in our ways, but yet there's so many things on which we think alike. And these people would like us to think out here that unless I'm treated by a doctor of the same race, I might oh, face systematic oh, yes, racism that's, that's in medical in institutions. So I, I don't understand that. That's big in the United States, too. This, this is a huge thing. It's, it's become a huge thing, which is, which is um, uh, that the statistics have been collected. Mm. And it turns out that black babies have mm. worse outcomes than yeah. white babies, or for that matter, Asian babies. Uh, and, and, and the next phase of this is that there are fewer black doctors than the black percentage of the population. Oh, there aren't enough black doctors for the black babies, assuming that, that you had to be treated by somebody of the same race. Now, why is it that the black babies have worse health outcomes? Racism? Well, one hypothesis is that the white doctors are racists who are intentionally mm. harming the black babies. That's that strikes me as ridiculous and completely implausible. But that's that is the favored hypothesis. The, you know, the other hypotheses include that uh, that a higher percentage of the black mothers are taking drugs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or or just. Uh, don't have their lives together very well or are in, in poverty. They don't see doctors very often. They don't pay attention during the pregnancy to the various issues that can come up and be taken care of. I, I'm not saying any of these things are true. I'm just saying that's where I would look for a hypothesis as opposed to the hypothesis that the, <clears throat> the non-Black doctors are racist, which I, and not only just racist, but are intentionally ill-treating the black babies, I think that's ridiculous. But a, mm, that is the preferred narrative. That is the preferred around. narrative. And I think this is also the whole dumbing down. Now, if it was up to me, I would look at the statistics of US as a whole, and which shows me that you have 5.9 deaths per thousand infants, childhood deaths, and Cuba only has four. So you are 50% worse off than Cuba as a whole country. And that's what I'd be focusing <laughs> on. And three times worse than Norway. But it seems... We are forced to, yeah. You're telling me you believe the statistics coming out. I mean, I'm just just saying (laughs) there's this data there that, again, you know, our Lord and Masters at the World Health Organization declared. I would look at why Norway is just 1.4 deaths, while, you know, US is 5.6 deaths per thousand. That's what I'd be looking at rather than trying to look at everything through an ethnicity-based lens, a race-based lens. Growing up, I mean, you don't get much more multicultural than India. And then the Indian army. Again, I'm a very small minority, the Sikhs in India. We never thought of this thing. The British were in India for nearly 300 years. We never had colonialism mentioned in our you know, texts other than you would have you know, the, the Muslims built the Taj Mahal, the Mughal emperors, or the British built some of the best hill stations, Dalhousie and others in India. And But we've never had colonialism blamed for anything all our lives now. As an expat Indian, I occasionally see Indian media talking about getting back the diamond on uh, the crown of the, the King of England. <laughs> and I'm like, seriously, you're sending a guy to somewhere in space, God knows where, when you can't even afford to feed your own people. What's wrong <laughs> with priorities? <laughs> yeah. It's a one messed up world. It's, it's hard to answer that, isn't it? And that's why um, perhaps your blog's called the Manhattan Contrarian. Uh, we've got contrarian views here as well, and may we, lo- may we long have them. Um, just moving on a little bit, there's a lot of language that is used by these uh, 
these good people of the ex- of the extreme left. <laughs> I, I've got to say the extreme left because they keep extreme. saying I, I, I'm called the far right, so I'm going to call them the far left. How about the, the extreme hard left? left. The hard, hard left, okay. <laughs> uh, but they come up with all these terms, and I've been mystified by many of them, um, and Jasper highlighted one earlier. Collaboration was a term that I first heard, um, new way collaboration about 2008, but um, we we had a lady on from uh, Tulsa a few weeks ago, Juli- Dr. Julianne Romanello, who talked about the lexicon of of these uh, leftist words, and you know, there's hundreds of the words. I've been intrigued by the diminution of the word word shareholder when it comes to companies, and we now talk about stakeholders as if non-owners have more say in a company than the real shareholders. Is that something that you observe? Um, secondly, I've never quite understood the term not-for-profit or non-profits, and yet people in there seem to be fatting themselves quite well. Um, well, I can and- treat both of these. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you that uh, the business of commercial litigation is going to give me a lot of insights into these things. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um <clears throat> I'm just I'm mulling over where to start on this. But so here in the United States, the law of corporations and the law of the duties of corporate officers and directors to shareholders or for that matter, stakeholders is a matter of state law, not federal law. And the the federal law has intruded into it somewhat, but not that much. And so it really is a question of almost entirely of state law. Right. Um, now, the state law, y- y- you might find this funny, but you, you can incorporate your corporation in whatever state you want. It doesn't have to be where your headquarters is. Uh, a lot of people, small companies that are never going to have much revenue or do much. We'll generally incorporate where the, in the state where they are. But if you're going to be a big company, you probably want to incorporate in one of the corporate centers. And the, the two big ones are Delaware and Nevada. Delaware and Nevada just happen to be close to New York and California, respectively. But they have uh, corporate law, which, first of all, because a lot of Big companies have been incorporating there for a long time. Been a lot of litigation. There's been a lot of case law. There's a lot of precedent. So you you and 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 there's a small number of judges. Delaware is a very small state. They have something called the Delaware Chancery Court that uh, that litigates the corporate cases. There's only three judges there at any given time. You get to know them personally. So and you get to know what you're going to get. So companies incorporate in Delaware on the East Coast and on Nevada on the, on the West Coast. And they have uh, a well-developed corporate law that uh, the only the duty of the officers and directors is a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. Now there are plenty of people out there advocating that this is evil capitalism at work, and that we ought to do it differently. And a number of states have fallen for it and have put into their corporate statutes that there are duties to stakeholders. And the states can do that because, again, it's a matter of state law. And we have, I guess, um, uh, see if you can get somebody to reincorporate there. Some states, now, let's, do you know about corporate takeovers, contested corporate takeovers? When you have a public company and somebody goes publishes an ad in the newspaper to, directed to the shareholders, your stock is trading at $20 a share, I offer you 30, tender your stock to me. The shareholders say, okay, I'll take the 30. A week later, the raider owns 60% of the stock, throws out the board, throws out the mm-hmm. officers. Okay, so uh, th- that was a substantial part of my commercial litigation practice was dealing with those situations, which always provoke litigation. But one of the things that happens is a, a company which has a lot of business in Pennsylvania, and they see this coming, they say, okay, I'm going to reincorporate in Pennsylvania, 
because I have a lot of employees in Pennsylvania. And if these guys take over, they're going to fire the employees. So I got the Pennsylvania legislature to pass a law for stakeholders, which includes the employees. And the Pennsylvania legislature did this. I mean, I'm not making that one up. The Pennsylvania legislature did it. And and a number of companies back in the 90s, I would say, were able to fend off corporate raids with this gambit. It didn't really catch on because ultimately it's not good for your stock price uh, uh, to do this. This was a, a pretty cynical maneuver by these guys. But so, so that was a wave of the stakeholder thing, but the stakeholder thing keeps coming back and back and back. I read an article last week that some, one of the judges on the Delaware Supreme Court, and there's only seven of them, I think, uh, which is, is the one above the Court of Chancery. So you can appeal your case to the Delaware Supreme Court if you lose in the Court of Chancery. And one of the judges on the Delaware Supreme Court gave a speech or wrote an article supporting the idea of stakeholder interest in the company. And, and it's created a little bit of a kerfuffle <laughs> Uh, because now if, if you don't know where Delaware stands on this, you, then, then all hell's going to break loose. And maybe all hell is going to break loose. I don't know. I, I think the point of the article was, Delaware, you better watch out, because if you try to go this way, all those and, and probably uh, three or four hundred of the Fortune 500 are incorporated in Delaware and they can lose that in the blink of an eye. They'll go to someplace else. So, so that's my disquisition on stakeholder capitalism in the United States. Hmm. And so Biden's home is uh, Delaware, isn't it? Somewhere in uh, that neck of the woods. Um, Correct. Any, any influence there? Is, is two houses. <laughs> he has a main house in Wilmington, which is the largest city of Delaware, largest city yeah. meaning 100,000 people. The whole population of Delaware is about six or 700,000. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, main house no. in Wilmington in a beach house in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. Well, uh, if I may ask you, I know we've we've taken much of your time uh, today, Francis, pretty much nearing what we said we'd take. I have just noticed this uh, in my Facebook feed that passed this morning. Bloomberg out there in the U.S. has just launched a tool, it says, for mapping a data mapping and materiality assessment tool aimed for investors to assess impact of the, uh, any company's business on the United Nations Sustainable Goals and how well they are doing at ESGs. Right. So, yeah, and you know, we have a whole lot of Bloomberg terminals across the world. Investors use them. They, they hire it out. Yes, I bet you and do. Yeah. Mike, Mike Bloomberg made a lot of money. And, oh, yeah. Mike Bloomberg and the Bloomberg company were for a long period, maybe still today, the largest client of my law firm. And I met Mike Bloomberg and I even been over to his very fancy house. Right. Uh, uh, in, in Manhattan, not, not so far from where I live. And I think he's, I, I think he's a very smart man and a very capable man. man and how he could be so deluded about climate and, and not seem to think it's a problem for him to own 12 houses and four corporate jets <laughs> To personally jet around while he lectures everybody else on their carbon footprint. I, I can't understand it no. at all. I, 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 I don't get it. I mean, imagine now launching a tool for a company to measure how well they're doing on. I mean, I use these terms analogously. So United well, Nations Sustainable Development Goals and your environmental social governance. They're pretty much the same thing in another wording, but they are forcing everyone to... There's companies who are now being held at ransom by their banks because if you don't comply with X, Y, Z, that's it. I, I, I think Bloomberg is behind the curve on this one. If you're reading the Wall Street Journal for the last week, in mm -hmm. fact, it, it's not my most recent blog post, but one past has a big chart of the outflows of investment from ESG funds because mm -hmm. all the ESG funds the oil companies have been outperforming everybody. The wind turbine companies are all going broke and they're yep. going to go broke. The solar panel companies are all going broke and they're all going to go broke. Yep. Everybody who's in this business is going to go broke. Nobody is ever going to make money on hydrogen. It, it can't be done because hydrogen 
It costs 10 times as much to make hydrogen as to make natural gas of the equivalent energy. Nobody can ever do it. It's impossible. And you have to have a 90% subsidy. So thousands of people are out there working on hydrogen and ESG funds are investing in it. And it's, it can't possibly go anywhere. People are completely deluded by their wishful thinking on this, I think. And, but you get Bloomberg. bureaucrats even from New Zealand going over, uh, over there. So Bloomberg has a Center for Sustainable Cities in Harvard University. We have had CEOs and mayors of our biggest cities, Wellington, Auckland, and so on, go there for, you know, fully paid by Bloomberg, not on the rate payer dime, but fully go there for these sojourns and they come back with these visions, visions of what New Zealand could become. <laughs> and one I, after I the other. I have a simple answer to that. As my simple answer is you first. You first. <laughs> I, I, I'm not giving up my gas stove. I'm not giving up my gas heat. I'm not giving up my gas dryer. I mean, do you have do you have natural gas down there? Because you know, like like here in New York City, we have natural gas under all the streets piped into mm. your house. So you can have a stove with gas. You can have heat with gas. You can have a dryer with gas. All of those work so much better than the alternatives. The yeah. electric grids aren't any good. But they try to spook you. I saw those Halloween ads about methane. What if natural gas the biggest killer? It was out on The Guardian and others. And that ad came out of the U.S. Scaring kids on Halloween. Give it, you don't want to do it. You don't want to be near it. Give it up. I'm okay with that. You first. Yeah, and, 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 in New Zealand and Australia, especially Australia, they are trying to, well, they're saying no new house builds will have gas uh, yes. reticulated to them. They're even trying to stop you having your gas barbecue. Uh, in Australia, um, do uh, you tell an Australian he can't cook on the, as they call it there, the Barbie? Um, there's going to be mayhem. <laughs> they need their gas. They cook with gas. For the so, Barbie, they don't use uh, traditional charcoal. You know, no, not, not much. Always. We don't use it much. <laughs> yeah, we're lazy. We love we love our bottled gas. But look, there's so so much in this space. I I really we haven't got time to talk about it, but I am. Uh, your daughter has been involved in this heat pump um, discussion, and I think you have as well. I'm very concerned about the rollout of heat pumps everywhere as if they're the best thing since sliced bread. I mean, the capital well, cost I, of I, I got to tell you this. She, she just sent this to me today, and it's going to be the subject of my next blog post. So you're getting you're getting a preview. Uh, scoop here. Yep. But the New York City Housing Authority, which has 170,000 units, just did a demonstration project on heat pumps that it's not actually finished. It's going to be finished and up and running in December on one building, 159 units. Uh, and they have built a heat pump system for this building to do both the heat and the air conditioning. $28 million. $28 million, $176,000 per unit, which is more than the unit is worth. Oh, my God. <laughs> I look That's their demonstration project. It's intriguing, isn't it, how that could happen? I know that in, in New York, you will probably use what's called ground source heat pumps, I imagine, so that you extract heat out of the, the earth. Uh, uh, yeah, it's far smarter than taking atmospheric. Uh, well, heat. you say that, but we're talking about apartment buildings. So the one yeah. I'm talking about, on this building, and there's actually a picture of it in the article she sent me. All these heat pumps are outside sitting on the ground. And oh. they, I'm sure they're, it doesn't say, but I'm sure they're ground source heat pumps. However, it costs $170,000 yeah. a unit. Yeah. And what the article says is, well, we can't really duplicate this for our whole portfolio, which is 175,000 units. So we're going, our next try is going to be window heat pumps. Well, what's the problem there? Those are air source. And yeah. how are you going to do ground source heat pumps in a 20-story building? You, to do ground source heat pumps, you can't do everybody has their own apartment with a heat yeah. pump because you can't get yeah. to the ground in the yeah. 20th floor. So no, they have no solution. They're totally blowing smoke. And it's only a question of how and when it falls apart. Well, uh, yeah, we'll look forward to that. It's interesting. Um, I was involved uh, locally with the power company and we have a demonstration home for solar on the east, west and north of the of the roof of this home. And on the dullest, coolest winter's day, it generated 1% of its capacity. And that's in a, that's in a, a, a city that doesn't get fogged in that often. It's got a pretty, yeah, it's, it can get a bit murky here, but 
one uh, percent. So it's really useful. Big and big return on investment on those days. <laughs> well, it, fr- it, it works yeah. fine as long as you have a grid to back it up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And we haven't even talked about the FDA and some of the stuff we would really love to have talked it about. Really this, this, I'll, be, this, I'll come back if you want. This, <laughs> fantastic. The surveillance state, we're, we're big on all this stuff, Francis. And so, look, yeah, look, we'd love to have you back in the new year. We know that uh, you're obviously a prolific writer and it does take time. None of the stuff is, is five minutes that you do. So we have really, really appreciated getting your time uh, so quickly. Uh, and so, yep, back next year. That you're on the hook for that. Thank you Send very much. Send me an email. I will. Uh, I will be looking for it. Oh, fantastic. Well, you enjoy uh, the rest of the year leading up to Christmas, and and your grandchildren enjoy them the most. They're the best. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you, Francis. Goodbye. Loving what you're hearing? Well, the establishment hates it, and right now they're conjuring up new ways to try and censor RCR to ensure you never miss a beat of the hard-hitting news you've come to know and love. Make sure you're on the RCR mailing list. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.